One of the biggest stories from 2021 was about the lack of international cooperation and action in the face of a truly global emergency. And without rapid changes, scientists say we can only expect things to get worse. Climate change is now rapid, widespread, and intensifying. The coming decades will bring more extreme weather events like the floods and wildfires we've seen in the past weeks. Of course, I'm talking about climate change. It's pretty hard to hear headlines like these and not feel a sense of despair. For decades, scientists warned us about the catastrophe to come if we didn't deal with the warming climate. And this year, it felt like that catastrophe had finally arrived. The world our ancestors lived in, farmed in, and thrived in is gone. Maybe forever. And we have to deal with that. Today, we'll speak with one of the scientists who's been sounding the alarm about what we can do now. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We're looking back at some of our favorite past episodes. And today, I'm handing the mic over to my colleague, Kevin Hurden, to share a conversation he had earlier this year about climate change. It's honest and depressing, but definitely not fatalistic. I don't know about you, but when the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, came out back in August, I was kind of filled with a low-grade sense of panic. The report says temperature rise could reach or exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next 20 years. UN Secretary General called the findings a code red for humanity, adding that it must be a death knell for coal and fossil fuels. But as time passed and I digested more of the extraordinary findings in the report, I couldn't shake this feeling that maybe I'm not panicking enough. You should certainly be freaking out, uh, but freaking out should not paralyze you. You should freak out and take action, urgent action, not sit on your butt and say, we've got time because we don't have time. That's Dr. Salim Al-Haq. He's the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Dr. Huck has a wide range of expertise. He's been to all 26 Conference of Parties, or COPs. That's what the UN calls its annual climate conference. And he's been the lead author on some previous IPCC reports. So I spoke to him back in August, when the most recent report came out, about why we should all be paying attention. It's my understanding that the goal of Paris, the Paris Accords, was to try to limit our rising temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius. What does this IPCC report say? Where are we now? Uh, You're absolutely right. All countries uh, that were part of the Paris Agreement, which is all countries, since the United States has returned to it, have agreed to keep the global temperature below 1.5 degrees. And the IPCC report has told us that at the current rate, we will cross the 1.5 degree threshold within 10 to 20 years. So the time window to bring it down is very short and has to be done with very drastic measures, much more drastic than we have done in the past. I think one of the reasons that this report shocked so many people was that it has us on track to hit the Paris number by the early part of next decade. 
And that is frightening, especially because another 0.5 degrees is labeled catastrophic, correct? Correct. Absolutely. So we don't want to go into two degree and above territory because that's going to be bad for everyone everywhere on the planet. And when Dr. Huck says bad, that's kind of underselling it. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about the story of Atlantis, that ancient allegory about an advanced civilization that was plunged into the water by the gods as a penance for their greed. Atlantis, a land of violent contrasts, amusing themselves at the expense of human agony, the terrible ordeals of fire and water. In some of my darker moments of climate panic, I look at this interactive map from a nonprofit called Climate Central. And there are these swaths of land highlighted in red. Those are the areas that scientists expect to be underwater by the end of the century if those two degrees of warming take place. The beaches of North Carolina's Outer Banks, where I used to go as a kid, they could be underwater. And if you pan over to South Asia, things look even scarier. Bangkok and Ho Chi Minh City are both in that red zone. And if you look at Bangladesh, where Dr. Huck is from, it's dotted in red, even parts of Dhaka, the mega city where he was when I spoke with him. See, that's another source of his expertise because he's watching the climate change right now from his own window. The impacts that you are now seeing on television screens around the world have been happening in our part of the world for the last decade. It's not new news. This is old news. We've known it's happening. We are dealing with it. In Bangladesh, we're having floods and cyclones all the time. And in fact, I would argue Bangladesh is one of the most adapted countries to these kinds of impacts. And the rest of the world can learn from Bangladesh how to adapt to these impacts because they're going to happen everywhere now, not just to us. Bangladesh is often considered a front line of the climate fight, especially when it comes to water. Climate science isn't exact on the causes of rising sea levels. There are many factors, but the coastal communities of Bangladesh don't care for an explanation. The water is rising fast. There are more people here at direct risk from sea level rise and extreme weather events than anywhere else on the planet. So water in general at the global level is to climate change adaptation what energy is to mitigation. So if you want to reduce emissions, It's all about changing from fossil fuels to renewable energy. If you want to adapt to the impacts of climate change, it's mostly about too much water or too little water or different kinds of water. And Bangladesh is a very good example of that. So we are a country of nearly 170 million people living in an area of less than 150,000 square kilometers. That's really dense. That's the kind of population density you might see in city-states like Hong Kong or Singapore, but not often in a whole country, Dr. Huck says. And we're also one of the poorest countries in the world. And at the same time, our location is on the delta of two of the world's biggest rivers, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, which regularly flood. So we get floods from these rivers that come from the Himalayas every year. They flood. Flooding is not new. It's normal. But severe flooding happens once in 20 years. But unfortunately, in the last 20 years, we've had at least four of them. So the one in 20-year flood, that used to be a a very severe flood, has now become a de facto one in five-year flood. With so much water everywhere, floods in Bangladesh come in all shapes and sizes. So when I said floods, 
we have a number of different kinds of floods. The one I mentioned was the river floods that happened during the monsoon rainy period and when the glacier ice melts. That happens in the middle of the year around June, July, August. We are in the monsoon period now. That's a regular phenomena. And, and Bangladesh is actually very well adapted to that. The problem is that these floods are becoming more severe and covering more areas. And then we also have floods in the northeastern part of our country, where if there's a very heavy rainfall just upstream of uh, us in India, then the water rushes into Bangladesh in a matter of hours. These are flash floods that come in very, very fast and very difficult to prepare for them. And then another kind of flood is in the cities, the big cities like Dhaka and Chittagong, where a sudden downpour just clogs up the system. The water can't drain out. And citizens of Dhaka City have a hard time. They have to wade through knee-deep or sometimes even waist-deep water uh, to get from their home to the office. So we have many different kinds of floods and many different kinds of water problems. At the same time, we also suffer from cyclones that come in from the Bay of Bengal. Like the supercyclone Umpun that hit Bangladesh and India last year. A massive cyclone making landfall in eastern India near Bangladesh. It's one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in the Bay of Bengal. And the IPCC report warns of more intense cyclones in the future. Fortunately, Bangladesh has a pretty advanced warning system to minimize deaths. The country evacuated two million people before the storm made landfall. And this was during the pandemic. So they even set up shelters with masks and handwashing stations. But at some point, preparedness can only do so much. There are other issues to contend with, like saline water coming in from the sea. So the land has not gone underwater yet. It will in the future. But right now it's got saline. So the surface water and even groundwater has become saline. And the traditional crops that we used to grow, like the traditional varieties of rice, don't work anymore. They don't survive. Fortunately, we do have new varieties that are saline tolerant. Our scientists have developed them and they are spreading and our farmers are using them. So we are adapting. As I said, Bangladesh is one of the fastest adapting countries to the impacts of climate change. But there are limits to adaptation. We cannot adapt to everything. The problem of water, it's so multifaceted. You're talking about sea level rise, which can cause salinity in crops. It can affect drinking water, glacier melt from the Himalayas that causes more floods, and then it causes larger typhoons. So that's that's five different downstream effects from rising temperatures and rising water. That's correct. In fact, it's actually more than that. What about the basic idea of sea level rise? Are there technologies that you're working on? I know the Dutch have, have been pioneers in this. Are there solutions to holding off the sea, or is at some point that going to just be a losing battle? Well, there are two aspects to how one does it. There's the Dutch solution, which is you build a wall, and then as the sea rises, you build the wall higher, which they are doing. They have the money, they have the technology to do that. In our case, our delta is much bigger than the Dutch delta. Mangroves are a very effective protection uh, for people. So there are nature-based solutions that we can have, not necessarily engineering solutions. But ultimately, as I said, um, it's a losing battle. And that's why Bangladesh is looking for other strategies, some that basically take it for granted that certain areas will become unlivable in the not-too-far-off future. So we have this program called climate-resilient, migrant-friendly towns, where over the next 10 years, the children don't end up becoming farmers and fishers like their parents. 
but they get educated and they get jobs in towns. And then they take their parents to live with them at some point in time when they have to move and they can no longer continue to live where they are, which is predictable. We know that's going to happen. We just don't know how long we have. The idea is to try to identify towns where those people can go and to provide jobs and livelihoods for them when they get there. Because right now, a city like Dhaka, a city that's already red on that climate map, isn't equipped to take all those people in. And the outcomes have already been deadly. Dr. Hawk told me about a fire at a food processing factory in Dhaka back in July. Several of the fire's victims had moved to Dhaka from coastal areas to find work because their communities were affected by climate change. That includes 15-year-old Tarek Zia, whose father lost his farmland thanks to an ever-eroding shoreline. He had escaped climate change uh, impacts in his uh, village where he came from in the coastal zone and come to Dhaka in search of work and found work in the factory. And that's where he met his unfortunate fate. So it's a situation of frying pan to the fire, as it were. He's just one of many thousands of people that are doing that every day. They're not all climate migrants, but a good proportion of them will increasingly be climate migrants. And Dhaka City is the fastest growing megacity in the whole world. Right. We don't know how big the population is right now. Anything from 15 to 20 million, depending on how you draw the line around the city. But it's, uh, it's bursting at the seams. And that's where these towns come in. We've identified around 20 smaller towns around the country, which we are developing into what we call climate-resilient, migrant-friendly towns. And if these 20 towns can take, let's say, half a million people each, that's 10 million people who don't end up in Dhaka City and get a life somewhere else. So migration, planned migration, enabled migration, facilitated migration becomes a second-order adaptation rather than unplanned and forced displacement, which is what we see at the moment. Do you think that all countries should be making these types of arrangements or at least be thinking about this sort of stuff? Absolutely. This is uh, unavoidable. The more we leave it, the bigger the crisis will be when it happens. And if people in the developed countries think uh, migration is a problem uh, today, they ain't seen nothing yet. It's almost as if you are joining us from the future. Exactly. You're just a little bit ahead of the world, and this is all coming for the rest of us. Absolutely right. You know what? We are facing climate change today. You and the rest of the world will face it tomorrow. And you can learn a lot from us in how to tackle it. We haven't solved the problem, but we are figuring out how to tackle it and how to survive better and enable us to get through it more effectively. I think this is the summer that the world finally woke up to the scale of the problem. But I really don't think it's internalized just how much has to change to solve the problem. From your reading, what has to change to avoid that worst case scenario from the map where all those cities in Southeast Asia are underwater? What has to change is we have to start listening to the scientists who have been saying this for some time and also listen to the younger generation. Uh, And I would uh, point out uh, one person in particular, Greta Thunberg from Sweden, who started warning us when she was 16 years old in school. Our house is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour. And we are telling you to act as if you loved your children above all else. She is ringing the bell of emergency and saying we're not doing enough and we aren't doing enough. 
and we just are ignoring her. We cannot do that anymore. So what I characterize us as having passed this threshold in the summer of 2021, in fact, of July 2021 in particular, we are now living in what I call the era of loss and damage from climate change, attributable to human-induced climate change because we have raised the global temperature by well over one degree centigrade compared to pre-industrial. That is something we used to think will happen far in the future. It's already happening now. So what does that mean? It means every single day from now on, this is my prediction, a world record weather event, extreme event, will be broken somewhere in the world. And if you read the newspapers, you can see that happening right now as we speak. Hurricane Ida has been tearing across the United States, leaving behind chaos and destruction. Here in New York City, the National Weather Service says it issued its first ever flash flood emergency for parts of the city. The worst flooding in parts of Western Europe for several decades. Turkey has been battling its most destructive wildfires in living memory. Wildfires, heat waves, floods, cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes, uh, they are all going to increase. And they will be not just weather breaking events, but weather shattering events. To give you the example of the heat dome that hit uh, northwestern United States and Canada. In late June, the Canadian town of Lytton set a record for the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada. And the next day, it set another record. And then another the day after that. 49.6 degrees Celsius, 121 degrees Fahrenheit. Five degrees above, not just incrementally above their previous record. And those temperatures in Lytton were followed by wildfires, which eventually destroyed the whole town. The inhabitants, who are mostly indigenous Canadians, by the way, First Nations, have lost their homes. They have become climate migrants. So don't think of Bangladesh when you think of climate migrants. Think of your own citizens. There are two divides of people on the planet. The first divide is between the rich countries and the poorer countries, the global north and the global south, if you like. In the global south, we have no arguments. We all know it. We don't need IPCC reports. We look outside our window and we see the impacts of climate change. And we are already trying to adapt to it and do what we can. So the argument is very much a northern developed country argument, and specifically in the United States of America, where there has been a lot of misinformation put out by the fossil fuel companies in particular to keep the populace misinformed. The second difference on a planetary scale is a generational difference. And every country is now having arguments between the younger generation with their own older generation, their own parents and grandparents. They need to listen to the younger generation. They are the ones who get it, because the older people have already let us down. They had a chance to do it, and they didn't do it. I want to ask you about the fundamental unfairness of the situation. The emissions that are largely caused by rich countries are affecting the global South faster and first, and they'll be the ones that have to deal with this stuff before them. How do you reconcile that? How does that affect the politics of this in a place like Bangladesh? This is something that in Bangladesh, and I would say even in the larger global South, is something that we understand very clearly. For us, the climate change emergency and crisis is not an environmental problem or even an economic problem. It's fundamentally a moral problem. It's a case of injustice. And the injustice is that rich people, including rich people in the poor countries, but rich people in rich countries, by and large, are the ones who cause the problem because their emissions are much higher than poorer people. 
And that's a matter of injustice. And that's one of the reasons why you find major religions stepping in here. The Pope has sermonized about it. Climate change is a problem we can no longer be left to a future generation. The Islamic clergy have written about this. The other religions have done this. This is immoral. Mm. It is not right. And if any of us have a religion, or even if we don't have a religion, it's wrong. It's morally wrong. I think you're absolutely right that climate change is the most important issue that's maybe ever affected the entire world. We're really looking at a completely new planet that's going to be here by the end of this century. And I think that's one of the reasons that people like Greta are are so vocal, because they're looking ahead. They're looking at a potential future. It's not out of the question that there will be all of these lost cities, like lost cities of Atlantis. And they'll be doing scuba diving expeditions to look at Saigon or, or Miami. And I think they'll look back at us and say, like, why didn't we do more? I mean, you've been at every single cop. Mm-hmm. You're in a position to answer that question for future historians. Why didn't we fix this when we could? <laughs> I don't know the reason why, but it's certainly true that we didn't when we could have. And we're still not doing when we can still do. But I'm not giving up. I still have faith, as I said, particularly in the younger generation, but time is running out and we're not doing it at the level of emergency and urgency that the problem requires. Unfortunately, incremental progress doesn't cut it. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Dina Kisba, Priyanka Tilvey, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Malika Bilal, and me, Kevin Hurton. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Almilake is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>